I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. We're delighted to welcome Joshua Cohen here to talk about his new book, Attention, A Short History, published by Notting Hill Editions. Joshua is the author of five works of fiction, including Vits and Four New Messages, which was named as one of the best books of 2012 by The New Yorker. He's also written for a number of publications, including M Plus One, The Believer, and The London Review of Books. In conversation with Joshua this evening is regular LRB contributor Brian Dillon, who's the author of several works of fiction and non-fiction, including Sanctuary. And with no further ado, that just leaves me to ask you all to join me in welcoming Joshua Cohen and Brian Zillian. Thanks very much, Claire. So I think uh, before I uh, direct some questions at Joshua, he's going to read from uh, the opening pages of Attention, A Short History. The opening chapter is called Distraction. And then it just departs from there. Everyone knows what attention is, is a good first line. It arrests your attention, then lets it loose. It sates through deprivation. It was written by William James and published in 1890 in The Principles of Psychology, but it is not the first line of that book, nor even the first line of its lecture essay on attention. To write a book in which every sentence is a first sentence, to write a book in which every sentence is as good as the first sentence, to live as if every day were your first, to live as if every day were your last, conditionally, to begin with sex, to begin with loss, to begin with death, to begin with the end. Everyone knows what attention is, James asserts, but he doesn't let that stop him. Quote, It is the taking possession of the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what seems several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought. Focalization, concentration of consciousness are of its essence. It implies withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with others and is a condition which has a real opposite in the confused, dazed, scatterbrained state, which in French is called distraction and in German. The most distinctive aspect of this passage is James's insistence that the word distraction is French. James's linguistic scrupulousness was shared by his brother Henry. Quote, 
There was a new infusion in his consciousness, an element in his life which altered the relations of things. He was not easy till he had found the right name for it, a name the more satisfactory that it was simple, comprehensive, and plausible. A new, quote, distraction in the French sense was what he flattered himself he had discovered. He could recognize that as freely as possible without being obliged to classify the agreeable resource as a new entanglement. He was neither too much nor too little diverted. He had all his usual attention to give to his work. He had only an employment for his odd hours, which, without being imperative, had over various others the advantage of a certain continuity. That passage is from a fiction called The Tragic Muse, also published in 1890. It is neither its beginning nor end rather a passage from the middle of a middle chapter. The tragic muse is obsessed with the theater, as was James. We're often the most obsessed with disciplines for which we possess the least talent. All that you should be able to recall, now, tomorrow, next week or month, is that a certain type of British theatrical character written by a celibate homosexual expatriate American might still have considered distraction French in or around 1890. Thank you, Joshua. So there's a great deal in those opening pages for us uh, to come back to, I think, including the idea of distraction, um, including, I think, the late 19th century, which seems a kind of interesting uh, pivotal period in this book. But it chimes, interestingly, with something that actually you leave till very late in the book, which is uh, to speak about the original impetus behind it. Why a book about attention and why a book about attention now? And very late in the book, you say, I've written this book thus far because I was interested in the subject, because I wanted to challenge myself as to whether I was able to write about something I wasn't interested in, something I loathed. So I guess the first question is just to what extent do you loathe the subject of this book? Well, yeah, I mean, I I always have to loathe, again, you know, what I'm not good at. Uh, We're always obsessed and then begin to hate the things that, that frustrate us. But um, I think that all of my, my projects, and this is probably a, a character weakness, they all sort of stem from some resentment or prank or joke. I sort of want to, to satirize or, or maybe even take revenge. And, um, and attention has become, um, a very trendy subject in the last, say, eight to ten years. Though you can see it really in the early 80s, but, but I think in the last eight to 10 years, especially with some of the neuroimaging stuff that, that, that has been possible, it's really become an enormously trendy subject that has also obviously a pharmacological component. Um, so it's a psychological, a pharmacological, a medical component, just pure neuro, neuroscience for the sake of neuroscience, uh, component and, and, and certainly philosophical one as well. And I, I thought it was ridiculous when I first heard about it, and I first heard about it because I spend too much time with artists, and the way it was kind of taken on in a new media theory way seemed to me to like replace actually making something that's worth paying attention to, but really to talk about the experiential or sociological phenomenon of taking in art. You know, we're, we're all gathered in an art gallery, just like you're gathered in a reading. You know, everyone's attractive. There's alcohol. It's some sort of sociological setting for, for, for the art that never gets looked at or for the person who's talking who's not listened to. And I think that that was my initial impulse is to kind of say, well, attention, yeah, sure, let's talk about it because it doesn't exist. It means too much or it's meant too many different things. Then, as with all of these sort of pranks or these these jokes I have – or these revenge fantasies, it, it's always as a sort of defensive maneuver for what is really 
a more spiritual searching, you know, because we're going to go in the pop sphere pretty soon. So let's let's use the word spiritual searching, you know, that that I was doing, which is to say, if we're agreeing that all of our experience of the world is not only, you know, under the sign of capital and our attention spans are being, you know, monitored and capitalized and, and competed for as if it's a, you know, resource scarcity. And then we're also going to agree that we're living, you know, these deeply empirical or pragmatic lives where, you know, God isn't around. We can't really, and, and our experience defines the world. There's no, you know, truths. Then you can't ask those questions like, why are we here anymore? And, uh, you can't have those great stoned undergraduate fantasies of why are we here. But then I realized that attention to me then became a proxy for asking that question because it's not why are we here, but why is this? You know, why is this what is around me? Why is this my my sensorium sort of? And I, I realized that that was actually a, a much more important metaphysical question um, to me. And I think maybe even a more important metaphysical question than, you know, the reality of God's total attention to us. God's total attention to us appears kind of quite early in the book because one of the key figures in the book is not a, a chronological history of attention, but there is within it a kind of history that begins, I mean, you could say that in a Christian context, the history of attention begins in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It begins with a failure of attention, begins with a failure of, of vigilance. But one of the theological places that that gets taken up is in the writings, for example, of St. Augustine, lots of the other church fathers as well, but Augustine talks about uh, various failures of his own attention mm -hmm. um, in reading, in praying. He finds himself constantly distracted. He's distracted either, first of all, by his own thoughts or he's distracted by, he's distracted by a fly that crawls, you know, across the page as he's reading and so on. Yeah. And there are these little kind of uh, allegories of attention in, in that kind of theological writing, but also a kind of gathering, a sort of constellation of all of these um, adjacent Terms, And I wonder whether in that period already you see attention sort of evanescing into things like distraction, boredom, the whole history of uh, monkish melancholia and acedia, that sort of failure of attention. Is that right? Is, is that notion that attention is always already about the failure of attention? It's difficult to say whether it's right or whether there's a historical continuum, because again, if the subject doesn't exist, you make it up. So in yes, and you know, in the world according to me, I feel that that actually is a phenomenon. I think that Augustine's attention, while, you know, the, the stories are of the fly and, and are of his own religious doubts, I think a lot of the stuff that it's buried is, you know, his own relationship, um, to Manichaeism and, and, and the sort of Neoplatonist strains that also come into play in, in how he was raised and his own sort of appetites before he, he ends up, um, cloistered. And I think that, um, and with Ambrose as his tutor, right? And so I think that to me, that idea of, of attention, you know, and there's observer bias in this because I'm a writer. So for me, it, it, it comes with the text. And when it comes with the text, then you have, first of all, a church father who wrote a lot of the things that became doctrine, but also a person who is dealing with the very daily idea of saying the same psalm you know, every day or saying the same psalm, you know, every week and, and these recurring ecclesiastical calendars that govern life down to the hour. And so then the question is, can you just say this stuff? You know, you say it a few times and you memorize it. I mean, even today I can have once or twice a year a horrible nightmare while I'll wake up and know my, my entire bar mitzvah portion just down the line, Torah and Haftorah because it was beaten into me. But uh, I know from that, I have to think and say, well, what does that mean? And I think that then Augustine begins to systemize it in a way that becomes 
this cycle, this way of interpreting the text that is not in the text, but that is this really um, an experiential interpretation about what he has memorized and then what he can then expect. And that expectancy would, for him, comprise a degree of the worship that God would see as the true discipline of worship. So it wasn't just this rote, this rote encounter. And for me, that history of text interacting with the idea of how one self-monitors, you know, obviously one is monitored by other people in a monitor, but the real self-monitoring idea, that to me is lays the groundwork for the future of religious attention for hundreds of years. And one of the problems um, for that kind of religious meditation for that kind of writing is a notion of uh, of the present of, of an attention to the present moment and mm-hmm. augustine has these various moments for example in confessions where he's trying to wrestle with where is the moment of birth where is the moment of death where is now where yeah. is is the present they were all bergsonian you know it's the idea that once attention is created i mean once attention is is noticed it, it's destroyed and, you know, there are all these kind of wonderful things in Augustine that sound like Henry Bergson or also sound honestly like particle physics where, you know, you're, you're seeing something, but you're only seeing it after something happened. You're seeing the effect. And what was sort of amazing to me was that what for him would define the worthwhileness of the enterprise would be how it prepares for the next iteration. It's always about the continuation of the discipline. And, and how that can best be continued, not necessarily the sacralization of the moment, because that would never register, or that should never register in a truly attentive person. I mean, there's a contemporary sort of concern with the moment and a kind of being in mm-hmm. the now and, yeah. and, and a sort of term that, that we hopefully will come back to about mindfulness and, and so on. But the book sketches from that point on a broad kind of philosophical history. Is that still about a, a tension between the moment, the instant, the now, and, and memory. That seems to be the case. In- yeah, I mean, I, I think that I tried to take Augustine in this again. When I, if I had to invent a history, I feel like I had to invent a form for the history. You can play the Google game of you know, trying to find attention in every language as, as, as it kind of passes through, through history. And then you can go in and you can say, well, you know, the Latin ad tenso, which became attentio, always had this manual, you know, apprehensive grasping sense, but it was used poetically, very metonymically of like, oh, I grasp what you're saying. And, you know, that coming from a Greek prosoche, which was very manual. And then you can see how it becomes exclusively mental and you can kind of follow it through all of these translations. But that wasn't the way to kind of do the history, I felt, because the word superstitions really dispersed into into everyone's notion of it sort of revealed everyone's agendas in different ways, but didn't really show the history of this abstract force let's say this this function that might also be a process and and so i tried to take augustine's expectancy as a as a form and show how in the way that he kind of set the groundwork for formal prayer uh or for the form of praying it sort of was reminiscent of the way that attentivity became part of the development of a scientific method and the way in which one actually scrutinizes something and and in the most basic sense of the only way we can look at something is if we can say how it's different from something else. And, and so where those divisions are drawn, particularly in the, you know, in the 17th century, I mean, obviously there are many stops along the way and there are many stops in the book, but it strikes me that even the stops, if I'm cherry picking it and I'm choosing my stops, 
the occasionalist stop with Malebranche, where, where the idea that everything sort of exists in God and one has occasional access to it. And it's an imperfect access, which is why our knowledge is not perfect. But that was in many ways in the writings of scientists in the 17th century was the idea of there's the world, perfect world of science and our access to it is, 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 you know, only occasional through certain methodologies that we need to establish. So yeah, I, I took these things as forms that recur later. I mean, to, to stick with the 17th century for a second, there's a sort of related term in that century, which is curiosity. And that seems to have a similar sort of ambivalence that on, on the one hand, curiosity is, is a good, you know, mm-hmm. scientific curiosity, that sense of both method and adventure. But on the other hand, Curiosity means care, and it means care precisely to minutiae. It means an excess, in fact. So as, as soon as Robert Hooke looks through his microscope and publishes the, the micrographia, and he looks at famously the flea, and he looks at you know full stops or periods mm. in, in written and printed texts and discovers that there are these horrible, messy, gnarled, strange yeah. objects, immediately people begin to satirize that and to talk about the excessive care of the curioso or the virtuoso. Yeah. So that sense that... Um, is there at the same time a, a discourse or perhaps it's buried because it's kind of displaced into other terms like curiosity mm. um, of an excess of attention, a too close looking? Well, certainly in the early days of the microscope, I mean, the Van Leeuwenhoek days, you, I don't know that one could say it wouldn't be too excessive. They're just trying to find out what the little animalcules and spermazoa are, you know, but, but I do think that in the excess of attention, not, let's say, at a lens, but in early speciation in the 17th century, where, I mean, Linnaeus being the most famous, but certainly many, many around him and before him, trying to show how things are related, plants and animals are related purely on, on phenotype, because, the, you know, genotype was a dream. And the idea that this looks like this, so it must be related to this, but then we're going to look a little bit closer and we'll actually find that there's some way in which, you know, the stem goes through the leaf in a different way that actually goes through the leaf in, in a similar way, but the outsides of the leaf are, are in fact different. It's, the, it's that slight revelation of the thing that's unexpected that actually, I think, provides the next, you know, scientific advance. And so it's not necessarily that there's too much care or too much from curiosity curating of what you're looking at and putting these boundaries around it and these, these separations, but I think that it might be that there's too much, it's not ignorance, it's just, it's not making room for the unexpected. And then when the unexpected comes into it, the idea that then the system needs to be entirely overhauled. And I think that there's an enormous difference when you're talking about the 17th century, which is obviously seems like a century that should have lasted 10 centuries with just the degree of differentiation and typology that goes on there. You know, you're, you're talking about people who, you know, on one hand, a person like Spinoza, who is taking this Euclidean geometric system and saying, I'm going to take this thing that's from math and I'm going to come up with these very basic principles that are going to show how all of life, you know, derives from this elemental substance that is God, which is this highly artificial project. And then there are also people who are Leibniz, who's in correspondence with them a lot, who's kind of doing the same sort of logic trees, but he's doing it to invent bibliography for the Duke of Hanover. It's the application of these methods but it's the willingness to scrap the system or to adapt the system or to bastardize it that really provide the opportunities for, for, for great discovery. So Leib- Leibniz, as you say, Leibniz is, is inventing a, essentially a kind of bibliographic system. Yeah. Um, and th- there's a long history of a, a, a material history to do with you know, index cards and slips of paper on which things are written and, and arranged and, and become uh, lost and diffused and rearranged and so on. So one of the things the book 
describes is a history of, of material technologies of attention. Um, bibliography is, is one of them. There are others to do with writing. So you talk about, for example, the shift from, from handwriting, from cursive, and from, from everything that, that implies in terms of a kind of flow, both of, of attention and of, of prose, through the advent of printing, and really crucially the typewriter. Is, is that a kind of opposition between the flow of attention, kind of immersion on the one hand, and already a kind of fragmentation in mechanization, or is, it, or is that putting it far too crudely? I, I, I don't think there's anything as too crude with this stuff. You're kind of putting it... <laughs> these mechanistic ideas of sort of what survives... These are very difficult things I think, to talk about because these are all things that begin as intuitions or things that begin as these imaginative or accidental um, states that then become concretized and become standardized. We have that every day with the QWERTY keyboard, which is, you know, the keyboard arranged in its Q-W-E-R-T-Y way, which obviously is really just the relic of the typewriter. Q and W aren't used together a lot. And so when their type bars would go up, when you were typing very fast, they wouldn't get tangled. But, you know, we don't have type bars on a, you know, MacBook Pro, but we still have a QWERTY keyboard. That you see these accidents being enshrined and being standardized today. And then you see at the very beginning of printing that italicism, the connected ligatures between the letters, the italic, the cursive way of writing, becomes the first font of the printing press um, because people are used to reading that. And so that becomes becomes established as a standard for, for a very long time. It's the history of these accidents becoming real and, and becoming standard. And I think that while we can say that that's exclusively technological, and that's, I think, a lot of the writing about it is saying that this is what technology does. It takes these, you know, innovations and establishes them as forms. I think the same thing really happens in, in the world of ideas. When you look at going back to Leibniz again, a guy who obviously is coming along way after Democritus and like his little atoms and now has this idea. Well, yeah, my atoms are called monads. And I'm not going to tell you how many monads there are in the world, because who knows? And I don't know how many monads it takes to, you know, make a glass of water. But I will tell you that everything is made of them, and they're not going to be, they're going to be subliminal. And they're only going to become liminal, you're only going to be able to perceive them when there are enough of them agglomerated together to pass that sensory threshold. And so obviously he doesn't know anything about frequency or color frequency, wavelength, anything like that. And we get into particle wave theory later, but it's the idea that this was like a very old fantasy of the Greeks that then became this pretty systemized by Leibniz, or he wanted to systemize a little bit more. And then his little imagination that he added to his standardization was, well, there might be a level of monads necessary for me to perceive, you know, this thing of water, but then there's like another level that changes my perception of that to apperception, which is my knowledge of myself as a knowing entity, my awareness of my awareness. Which, which is a very strange idea that that is made up of these little balls, you know? And so I think that all of these forms, they, they repeat not just mechanically, but they repeat obviously um, intellectually because that's the way our minds work. They're constantly sort of adapting on the fly, as I am now. Um, <laughs> actually, as an aside, I mean, when you were writing this section, because it is one of the most detailed and fascinating sections about um, print and about typewriters, were you yeah. thinking at that point about about your own process of writing. And because what it made me think of is, in, certainly in my own attempts to banish 
distractions in terms sure. of writing. There is this notion of the writer wanting to kind of isolate the words themselves, right? Yeah. And, and people now talk about, for example, recently, the Russian government has apparently, you know, commissioned uh, a whole lot of manual typewriters, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. in order to avoid surveillance. And so there's a lot of kind of journalistic pieces about the typewriter as as, as a means of focus. Yeah. Um, and at the center of that is always this idea of the words themselves. Yeah. Um, what on earth does that mean in, in terms of a writer's attention? You know, where are they? Is that notion already there in, in that earlier technological history? Oh, I think that notion is there from actually the very, I mean, the first point where I can really see that is, is really early on in sort of the history of philology, actually, where you have these vast arguments that still go on, though people have kind of given it up, whether stylus is related to the word stimulus. And some people say, yes, well, you know, they have common, you know, they have a common root, the prick or the goad, the thorn. And, and then other people say, no, actually, they, they actually come from different eras and you don't see it used. So it might have changed, but it also might have been a, a misunderstanding. It won't be a Latin misunderstanding of the Greek. And so obviously those people will go on at extraordinary length challenging each other's tenure forever. And I think that you see this idea of wanting the text to be not only the locus of attention, but also the thing that sort of shocks you into attention, you know, the finger that, that points at you. And I think you see that really in that change from the Schreibkugel, the early writing ball, where you were typing, but you couldn't see the words that you typed on the page. It was hidden. It was The paper would be under the ball, and you would be writing, and then when you were done, you'd pull the paper out, and you would see how badly you screwed up. But the idea when that was moved to, you know, the front and then that when that was consciously modeled by Remington in the way that Steve Jobs took it to a farther degree or actually Park Xerox took it to a, to a much further degree with, with the Alto where then you have a, an interface that looks like a human with your monitor face and your speaker ears and then your input mechanism. And I think that you have these constant hopes that the text becomes both the thing to focus on, but if, if it isn't, it makes you, it forces you to do it. And I think then, obviously, you have that great explosion of concrete poetry. And one of the questions I always had, you know, because God knows I love concrete poetry, is that uh, I never understood really why there wasn't a huge body of concrete poetry before. You have micography, you know, but you don't really have that. But the idea that sort of everyone can become their word artist with this machine tells me what the hopes for it were. So one of the fascinating things that happens in this kind of broad chronology, this broad history of technology and attention in the mm-hmm. book, is that towards the end of this narrative that talks about handwriting and, and printing and, uh, and typewriting, you actually make a shift into what you call case studies. Um, so we move from the writer and the writer's attention and how that might be mediated or constructed uh, in technology to a number of case studies around the end of the 19th century. Can yeah. you say something about those and, and why, the, yeah. why the shift there in the book into fiction? I'm a lot closer, we're all a lot closer to the 19th century than we are to Augustine's time. And I felt that what I really wanted to do was to inhabit and experience so other people experience attention. So for a novelist, that means you make it up and you, you research and then you lie and you cheat. But one of the things that I had hoped to do was to, well, I guess the real origin of it, the real origin of it actually is that I was reading something from I'm going to get this wrong, but I, sometime in 1904, 1905, and I didn't understand what it, I didn't understand it. I, it was literally give this to, to the typewriter, 
the typewriter was 10 minutes late today. And it was referring to the women employed in the workplace as typewriters. And I said to myself, okay, so these are our, our women typing machines. And it was done not tongue-in-cheek. It was a departmental letter. And so I said, well, this seems to me not only reprehensible, but also like a pretty good Viktor Shklovsky and sort of like alienation effect. And I wanted, with this historical remove, and of course with the gender remove, what would it be like to be the late typewriter? So that's that's one of them. And then I... There was another part of me that was interested in fiction. I'm a novelist. I try to be. And, and the idea that a character always has to be a character with his or her own arc, let's say, living the novel of their lives to them. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com themselves, but they're, they're always this degree of what of them is representative of their time. So I had this idea of, you know, there's this guy who's working in a factory line in New York, this sort of assembly line, or this, you know, proto-assembly line at the time of Helmholtz, who's dealing with like a nerve and, and how fast electricity impulses, nerve impulses go along a, a nerve, and whether that's slower or faster than, than electrical current. And the image struck me and then the ridiculousness of it struck me, the idea that what does Helmholtz have in common with this guy besides they're at the same time, which then became a critique of, of history, of how to write history, which is to say you can fine-tune all of your edges and you can make all allowances for the individual destiny. And then you'll turn around and the fact that we can't escape you know, the opportunities of our time will always smack you in the face. But if you do the opposite, then you'll just come up with these you know, socialist, realist, representative figures. And I, I wanted to show how I feel part of a generation that was always told to look around the other corner, to always be aware of things, and that made us sort of timid and anxious about doing that. One of the things you argue briefly, I think around that moment in, in the book, is that the novel in that period, mm -hmm. essentially the beginnings of the high modernist fiction, yeah, exactly. doesn't address attention per se, doesn't call it attention. <laughs> but you, you could, couldn't you, construe the long history of the modernist novel as in a way a kind of history of, of the representation or the forms of attention whether it's you know Flaubert describing you know the the strata in uh, Charles Bovary's hat on the on the opening pages yeah. of uh, of Madame Bovary a thing that has has tears and, en and ends in a little one tiny absurd detail the tassel at the end that that level of concentration and that kind of parceling out of attention is is formally always there and that that's a kind of that's a way of dealing with some of the the history that you deal with in in, in those little fictional yeah. interludes i wanted to get there i had to sort of survive my miseducation first it's only when i started writing that i realized the most basic explanation is probably the right explanation that you know a novelist tells you what time it is it's 
4.23 p.m. because it has to be sometime because that is there to, to make everything believable, to create the extremes of the world. Where, where are you sort of nailing down a scene and, and where are you getting away from these realia? Really, what I was thinking about was wrestling with this idea of growing up in a in America in a gender studies generation right after a, a critical theory generation. And so when I think about the attentivity of modernism, you know, I put on my Halloween Frederick Jameson mask and I begin seeing things like the explosion of print from the linotype machine of the 1880s and 1890s, the, the tripling of the number of books published within a couple of years, the almost tripling of magazines and newspapers, the introduction of illustrated Sunday supplements, the jump on the front page. That's like the, the one thing, this book is worth one thing, which is that I discovered the exact date that the jump came onto the front page of a newspaper. And I had to look through a lot of newspapers to get that. And maybe someone proved me wrong, but I, I worked pretty hard on it. The idea that they wanted to put more breaking news. Someone had a baby today, apparently, but there were some other things that happened. And you need to divide up the page and tell like, you know, nine or 10 different stories. So you would have a column of each story and then it would say, you know, story continued on page three, story continued on page four. And, you know, the amount of letters to the editor these papers got by people, you know, who were just confused, who were used to this like straight column broadsheet continuous thing. It was, you know, worse than when they redesigned the Gmail interface and someone complains, you know? So for me, that critique of attention in modern fiction begins with the economics of modern fiction, sort of the the height of the serialization and then the the changing of print technology. That means that the three-volume Victorian novel sort of goes out the window and you can kind of make what you make. And it's only after I wrestle with that that I can sort of get to the materials of it. And when I get to the actual materials of the fiction, it's very difficult for me, to be honest with you, to compartmentalize those things. I mean, I, I, and I don't know whether they're related, except, again, in what we were talking about earlier, whether one is representative of the other, and the dog wags the tail, the tail wags the dog. So, in a way, there's a kind of prehistory in that uh, fragmentation of, say, the newspaper or, or the <laughs> magazine, <laughs> and the kind of anxiety about that about the, the way that your attention is, is suddenly projected forward within yeah. the volume of the book or the, or the paper. There's a kind of prehistory there of contemporary cliches, yeah. really, about the diminution of attention. I mean, one of the, the sort of long periods in the book that, that I feel fairly strongly about asserting as, you know, not a history that I'm entirely proposing, but that seems very real, is this you know, roughly 1860s, 1867, 1866, the, the sort of birth of psychometrics, which is really the end of attention as a qualitative idea. You know, this sort of walking in the fields as this, you know, good Rousseauian individual intellectual who's just full of these pathetic fallacies. And when there's a storm, it obviously represents the storm in his heart. And when it's sunny, it's because there's sun in his, you know, heart. Uh, wherever else... We, we need more organs. But that change really with psychometrics, which has, you know, these skin reactant studies, these like primitive machines that would sound a tone and you would have to knock the lever off that would stop the tone. And that time would be your reactions dour. It's the word of your reaction time. 
the, the work of Wilhelm Wundt and, and Exner and, and Donders of, of, of actual reaction to stimulus, but also then the timing of cognition with the idea of a, a screen drops, you see a word, you have to say the word into a little horn, and that times actually, actually your cognition, how long it takes for you to read something, translate that to your mouth, and then your mouth says it out loud. That really is the beginning of the spanning of attention, you know, Yaval and the Sakad and jumping around and chunking a line of text into these chunks of seven to nine words. So you don't read a line linearly. You read it these discontinuous sort of swerves. That really is the sign we're still laboring under, the attention span. The difference is, is that, you know, those early psychometric researchers were kind of doing science for science's sake, though a lot of them also had industry connections. But now it's really being done to see, you know, click-through rates and the best banner placement for ads on, on, on websites and, and whether or not you can have this elicited attention to participate in an advertisement that then gives you accrues benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But I see that long arc between the birth of psychometrics and the changing of printing technology and now the changing of, of publishing technology to be inherently digital, um, along with a different sort of psychometrics that's all about, you know, that's all inherently capitalized or, or about commodity. I see that really as a very long period. And with that is the time anxiety that becomes involved in it. It's also bound up with uh, military technology, isn't it? With, yeah. with the duration and degree of attention of somebody listening to sonar or looking at a um, radar screen. Mm-hmm. In the decade before radar in this country, mm-hmm. there's the, a long history from the First World War on, actually, of uh, acoustic early warning mm-hmm. systems, which in the mid-1930s... Does are, that mean church bells? <laughs> it means sound mirrors. It means yeah. big concrete sound mirrors that, that focus sound. And around 1935, on the on the southeast coast here at Dungeness, experiments discover that the optimum time that a soldier can actually listen for oncoming aircraft coming across the channel is 45 minutes. Um, but a lot of this is in the book, isn't it? Yeah, the, the, yeah. There is there are very concrete links between the kind of psychometric early psychometric testing, sure. um, the contemporary tracking of attention on the internet and so on, and a, and a military industrial. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we definitely have every major military to thank for forwarding the quantification of attention. Not only that, but also the pharmacological improvement, or quote-unquote improvement of attention, with the idea that, you know, amphetamine was really made in Germany, and pervitine being that first speed that was that was given to uh, the Wehrmacht, you know, and now the average American child uh, who's prescribed uh, Ritalin or Adderall is essentially taking three times the dosage of, of the average daily dose given to a Wehrmacht soldier. You can take, the, uh, you can take the, the chemical or the pharmacological element to it, and then you can actually have the, the more sociological element or philosophical element, which is when you're giving it to a child and you're using sort of military pharmacology on a child, you are importing an adult's notion of time or an adult's usage of time onto a child who experiences time very differently. And then, of course, the ultimate model, neuroscientific model of, of attention is this attention system. You know, it would be a system to put next to our digestive system, our circulatory system, et cetera, and it would involve, uh, as those do, you know, multiple organs, and, 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 and it would be our primary visual and auditory cortices. It would be our parietal lobes. It would be our, you know, our skin. I mean, th- these models grow in the neuroscientific literature to really approximate our idea of a total surveillance state, you know, something that endlessly perceives, even when it's not conscious of its perception, but can be made conscious of its perception through other cues that will eventually reach, that, that has also been granted the powers of selectivity and beyond that preferencing and decision-making. And it seems that if we're going to shovel all of that 
into the bag that's attention, then neuroscience is doing what sort of philosophy always did, which is saying it's everything and nothing. And, and beyond that, it's everything and nothing, but it's so close to the workings of a surveillance state that the surveillance state almost becomes unnecessary because we become these self-monitoring creatures. And so, you know, why do we need an NSA if we become these data sexual creatures who offer our daily caloric intake and how many, you know, miles we've run today? Okay. I have other questions, but I think it might be a moment to see if anybody else would like to come in. I was very interested by your reading of the first pages and your beginning with William James, because it's always struck me that he is one of the people who took longest to decide what he was going to pay attention to and what he should pay attention to. And Henry James also, although he started quite quickly, is all about what one should pay attention to and also about the things one pays attention to by mistake and only remembers later. And I wondered if, obviously it wasn't chance you began with William James, but how did you begin with the principles of psychology? Well, I think I began with, with that because I, I had honestly just been reading a lot of, of the brothers. And I actually, I think I decided to, to begin with them when I read Henry James's um, first typewritten letter to his brother and sort of apologizing for, for, the, for the typewriting and saying, you know, I should be writing you by hand. But uh, William James is always a very clear writer and a very clear thinker. And I wanted to sort of begin on what I felt to be very practical, pragmatist ground because I was going to then tackle a subject that becomes increasingly abstract. And I found James's ideas of attention to be very basic without being reductive. And they all had to do with essentially finding a way so that one doesn't miss anything, but also understanding that the missing of something is necessary to the basic experience of life. I have like a real affinity, a deep affinity for the American transcendentalists. And I think that that's the, the inheritance that James got from people like Emerson and Thoreau. And th this idea really that I'm going to be a witness and I'm going to be an observer to nature, to human nature, to my own thoughts. But I also will understand the function of accidents in life. And I wouldn't say that William James respected the mystery of accidents. I don't think he was superstitious about it. He wasn't, but he, he appreciated their necessity. And I love that. And also, I, I think everyone knows what attention is, is just a great first line. And I didn't want to write a first line to this book because, uh, I mean, first of all, I don't think, I never want to write a first line to any book, or I just want to write a book of all first lines. But uh, I felt like to write my own first line for something that was supposed to just hold someone in this, this attention cliche way, it would just be better to begin one step removed and to begin obliquely and to critique. And that, that seemed to me the best best way to do it. Now, in the book, and indeed tonight, you touched on a number of philological questions. And one way of thinking about philology is that it's paying attention to attention-getting devices, namely words, right? Um, but that makes attention a rather diffuse phenomenon. So it seems that attention kind of generates its own kind of meta-discourses. Echoing also what you said about, you know, neuroscience moving towards attention as everything and nothing. So my question to you is, to what extent do you feel happy that you've come to grips with attention? And will attention continue to hold your attention? I'm never happy. And uh, 
and uh, uh, and I don't think I've come to grips with anything. I mean, I think the idea was was to write about something that didn't exist as if it did. You know, to just to, to say that something did not exist, to sort of propose this idea that it didn't exist, but then to write about it as as if it did, because it gave me the freedom not to look. It gave me the freedom to ignore many places that that would have provided, let's say, a more functional history, and not necessarily a history of the way we feel, the way it feels to live, and to and to have to deal with the limitations of our perception. The pleasure, I think, of writing the book for me was the idea that I was able to take a word from the doctors. I was able to take a word from the, the shrinks. I was able to take a word from, from the Greeks and, and make it something that it was for all of them and was not. And so what, what you were getting at in terms of like philology is really, it generates its meta discourses. A huge part of this book is kind of trying to figure out what, what was meant by vigilance or what was meant by conscientiousness and to kind of parcel out and like, and my sad four pages about the Asian and Southeast Asian languages, which just completely escaped me that make, you know, Western vocabulary about attention look like Cro-Magnon grunting. I feel like the, um, proposal of attention as a subject was really the proposal of attention as a word superstition that gave me freedom. And it felt wonderful while writing it. Now that it's finished, I'm, I feel bad about writing this next thing, but, you know. Could you say something about what has happened to the development of attention during the whole process of marketization and commodification in Western society? In 10 words or less, right? Uh, I really do believe in this very large period from the 1860s roughly into the present. And uh, I think that one of the things that you see in common, not just in publishing technologies and, and in rise of literacy and in access to information, I think you, you see time anxiety really appear in, in sort of both bookends, let's say if we're taking now and, and, and like the 1870s, 1880s. And I think that when you say what what is the commodity doing, I think it, it's proposing maybe an artificial resource or it's defining an artificial resource in order to create an artificial scarcity. And that sort of keeps people compelled in a, in a consumption way. I think once you tell people that they have an attention span, which is really inherently physical, but you have an attention span, you have to then begin treating it as if it were a commodity that needs to then be bargained for or purchased. Uh, and when everyone tries to purchase it, it becomes demand is greater than supply. Um, and then, of course, if you medicate yourself or get medicated, especially at a young age, to meet that demand, the long-term effects are not truly known. There, there are certain ideas of, of a cutoff age of maybe it's bad to give it to people under the age of 10. Other people say the age of 8. Some people say if you start taking it at a, start taking a, an amphetamine in your 20s or in your 30s, it's not going to have any bearing on brain development. But then there's also been studies that have shown that there are major serotonin and, and dopamine neurotransmitter scarcities, no lack of production of that later on in life. But again, that generation is not necessarily old enough yet to have those experiments done and the wartime generation was either not given enough or those studies were not done. 
So all of which is to say it turns our sensoria into a marketplace. And I think that represents, to my mind, the last marketplace before turning the body into a marketplace. And I think after that, there's really no place to go unless we're talking Star Trek. You seem to be starting from like a, a point about that contemporary anxiety about inter- attention, particularly yeah. like an internet age. And um, you mentioned about sort of the beginning of psychometrics on the negative scale of psychology, but I wonder if you could say a bit about positive psychology and mindfulness and how that's influenced by Buddhism and Eastern philosophy and like New Ageism and like the American transcendentalist too. If you've I, got anything to say at all. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't. It's very difficult um, for someone who doesn't read the Asian languages to get real access to thoughts about mindfulness that aren't in poppy, horrible, shitty books, to be honest with you. And, um, and not only that, but even in the translations of a number of the words that I've read a lot about, you know, there's a real separation between the idea of mindfulness and a disciplined practice of meditation, which needs to be undertaken uh, in order to obtain that mindfulness. So there's the idea of there's a ritual or a system that doesn't require a state, but is actually geared toward the production of a state. And obviously many, many different rituals or, or exercises done, you know, the visualization of certain categories, the visualization of certain objects, and then their gradual uh, erasure or replacement with other objects, the focus on um, certain glands or organs of the body in, in certain orders. I mean, these are, these should be left to, to an expert and it's not my culture to say, and I wish it were. The positive elements, I think, are, are, are far too watered down in, in my mind to really sort of talk about, I don't really believe that there's any way that one can discuss the increase of attention span through any of those methods that they want to sell you in the back of magazines. One thing that actually struck me to be you know, sincere about it is this relationship in the book between George Eliot and, and Luz, where he, you know, he's coining the, the phrase stream of consciousness. And Eliot, to my mind, is not a stream of consciousness writer, but here are two people who had this relationship with, with each other. And one is, is making novels that have these deep periods and sets that are supposed to show how a certain person of a certain class in a certain world made certain decisions and ended up in a certain place in life. If we're, if we're talking about literature, not in an appreciative way, but a purely sociological way, this is sort of the purpose of these of these novels, let's say. It's to give the information of, of a person's mind of a certain you know, socioeconomic strata certain geographic strata. The lose approach, which was this idea, which was scientific and was not you know, novelistic, was this idea that consciousness is something that should be let loose and not necessarily focused on a specific topic or specific theme, but his notion of consciousness being these you know, sort of rivers that have these tributaries that lead into these sort of pools where a few different streams sort of meet up um, was always fascinating to me and always seemed to me a model of intelligence, which is, you know, intelligence being defined in one way as um, the ability to draw connections between disparate events, disparate ideas. And I think Luz's model seems to me to have this sort of um, almost transcendentalist feel because it it spoke about the streams that sort of came together without being canalized without, you know, any real irrigation work being done to extend the metonymy a little too far. 
that to me is at least a an improving model than than the quantifiable model of attention, and it kind of came about at the exact beginnings of of the quantification of attention. Um, one of the ways that George Eliot is not a stream of consciousness novelist is is because because of the presence in a way of of the essay in her novels and especially in, in Middlemarch, the ability to kind of pull back into this essayistic voice. And reading this, I, I kept thinking, not, not only because obviously it's published by Notting Hill Editions, which has this uh, great commitment to the essay, but I wondered about your experience with the form coming, coming from three novels and a collection of, uh, uh, of short fictions to the essay. There have been a number of kind of journalistic kind of descriptions of the essay recently, most recently in the New York Times, um, of the essay as, as a form that is somehow suitable to our time because it is both a miniature form and a portable form, yeah. that it fits our, our lifestyles and our, our short attention, supposed short attention span. Yeah. And on the other hand, because it allows us access to this horrible thing called long form writing. <laughs> I wonder whether there was there was something in. I mean, it seems to me that the the, the form of the book is is really important. And whether there was something you discovered about the relationship between your fiction and a, and a nonfiction writing in terms of in terms of the subject itself. And I feel like to bring it full circle, Augustine had to always begin with certain prayers. We should always begin with the uh, we should always begin with the Johnson idea of you know only a fool wrote except for money. <laughs> so that that taken care of, I was going for an essay because that seems to be the way to earn a living, and it's also the way I earn a living. I write regular pieces, so that's my financial acumen and my genius, right? It's good business to get into. <laughs> Beyond that, it's the notion that I was trying to wrestle with the internet, which I'm still trying to do. Um, and when I say wrestle with the internet, I don't mean wrestle in the internet with I spend way too much time doing X or Y. I mean wrestle with the internet as having utterly stolen or in the McLuhan sense, you know, to, to what is that word? To relocate the, the former technology becomes hosted in the next technology. The internet and the novel were bothering me because with the novels I grew up reading were systems novels, so-called systems novels of the 70s and 80s. Barth, John Barth, Robert Coover, Thomas Pynchon, Don DeLillo. Uh, and these novels were always from the beginning of the systems novel in the, in the 60s described in terms of coeval technologies you know it was a the novel was like a transistor just like uh, uh you know vacuum tubes were gone it was like a transistor it would turn the current on and off you know and then and then it was like an integrated circuit so it would like turn it on and off and amplify and and and, and decrease the themes and it would shunt the themes and route them in different directions and then the internet came about and suddenly the systems novel was like the internet because it just kind of took one idea and it associated it with another idea and then associated with the third idea. I mean, you know, a great example of that is, is Don DeLillo's Underworld, where it's a baseball that passes through these consecutive landmarks of the Cold War. And it, the linkage is not the arcs of the individual characters and the relationships between them. It's about the relationships to be found among ideas. And that is, you know, Wikipedia. And so when you feel that this transgressive form of the novel really only had 25, 30, 35 years before it was available to every child. And that distressed me. And it made me feel like a form was being worn out like a cheap pair of shoes just too quickly. And so writing this was to try and find how I could 
mimic some of the ways that the internet works quickly, mimic some of the connections it makes, but at the same time frustrate the connections which are inherently, you know, which are governed by algorithms that are made by people. So to try and work counterintuitively against those connections. And I feel like the systems novel, as it proceeded from its origins, tended to, to proceed rather logically. This Rachel Kushner novel where it goes from motorcycles. Motorcycles have tires. So tires are made of rubber. Rubbers are made on rubber plantations. Rubber plantations are staffed by slaves. That's your, you know, Wikipedia. If you liked this, you might click this sort of idea. And I feel like the, I guess the one thing would be how do you go from, let's say, you know, motorcycles to ice cream? The, the swerves that have no logic. And, and that's what I was trying to do. And I felt a little bit more confident doing that in the essay form. And certainly the essay form about attention because the, the critique or the ridiculousness of the process would be encoded in the actual book. Thank you. Thanks very much, Joshua. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.